Well, good morning. We're glad that you are joining us for worship this morning. Whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for worshiping with us. As we're in week two of a series on perfectionism, chasing the things that are just outside of our reach. But before we jump into the message, uh, I would like to just take a moment and to thank the men and the women uh, who have served our country. So if you wouldn't mind, if you've served, would you stand and can we recognize those, those veterans? Uh, that includes you too, Dad, right? <laughs> As, uh, thank you. We have the ability to gather here and to worship God freely because of those that are willing to take, uh, take on that service that not all of us do. And so we're thankful for that. We can gather here this morning. This morning we're talking about perfectionism. And um, before we jump into this, we, we need to recognize this, that you're not perfect. So just to help you out, will you just please humor me? Will you turn to your neighbor, someone you came with, maybe someone you don't know, and will you just let them know, I'm not perfect. Go ahead, let them know. Okay, okay, now here's part two. <laughs> Kindly let your neighbor know. I know, I know you're not perfect. You can let them know. Perfectionism is one that maybe not all of us believe that this is, you know, our trademark sin. This is something that we have a propensity for, but I actually have a quick quiz, just a couple of photos, and those that are perfectionists among us, uh, you're going to be able to spot, there, there, you know, you can find there might be something wrong in some of these photos coming up. Is there anybody who doesn't see it? Because, you know, there might be, I don't know, some husbands out there, I don't know, it opens, it shuts, what do you want, you know? What about this? It's just wrong. Why, why do we have five? There's only three sinks. Like, how dry does one's hands need to be? Oh. You had one job, right? You had one job. Just take the extra two seconds, turn it a few degrees. Oh, for my generation, bubble tape. You have to spool it off. Who would do this? They're still looking for this, the monster of a person who would do such a thing. Takes a second. <laughs> Perfectly good cap right there, isn't there? Yeah. Okay, so, so for some of you that, that deal with perfections, and maybe you're now a little uncomfortable, good. Um, God's Word actually has a lot to tell us about perfectionism. Uh, and there is one verse that actually kind of stands out above all else. I'm going to share it with you. It comes from Matthew Chapter 5, verse 48, and it says this. This is Jesus speaking. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a tall order, isn't it? That, that is a high standard to be called to be perfect, as not just as my neighbor is perfect, not just as my boss wants me to be, but be perfect as God is perfect. 
We're going to actually return to this verse a little bit later on in the message, but we can see that God's word, you can look it up. There are many times the word perfect is listed throughout scripture, and this one stands out to me to go, wow, what a high calling that's on us. Now, you may or may not believe that you're a perfectionist, but modern psychology actually has three different definitions of the different types of perfectionism, how it might play out in your world. So let's go ahead and just explore these uh, so maybe you can see yourself in one of these. Here's a traditional one, the one that most of us are very familiar with, this self-oriented perfectionist, that you hold unrealistically high standards, expectations of yourself. That there's not someone imposing some sort of expectation standard uh, outside of you, towards you, but no, you're the one intrinsically who's saying, I have to reach this. And it's an all-or-nothing attitude. This is the type of person that gets a 98% on a test and goes home and cries. (laughs) Tears of sadness. I get a 98, I go home and I cry tears of joy. But there are those, those valedictorian-type folks that they just have to have the perfect 4.0 or now kids are having 4.5s. I don't know how they're getting these extra points, but they're getting them, and they are perfect in their studies, perfect on every exam, perfect on every assignment. It is an all-or-nothing approach to life. Either everything is just right, just so, or it's all a loss. Some would argue, some psychologists say behind this type of perfectionism is there might be some shame that's driving this person to try to pursue looking perfect, these unreasonably high standards they've set for themselves that they have to obtain so that they can be good enough. This doesn't stop there. That's not the only one. The second one here is an externally oriented perfectionist. And that's where you believe that others expect you to be perfect. Which, even as you hear that out loud, doesn't this sound ridiculous? That, like, others expect you, like, you can turn to your neighbor, you can turn to anybody in here and go, I know they're not perfect. Yet, in our, day, in our daily walk, when we go through life, I imagine many of us actually act this out, where we think that other people want us to be perfect, expect us, need us even to be perfect in all that we think, do, say, all of our tasks, either for our home, for our family, for our work, for our sports team, whatever it may be, that they need us to be perfect. And in doing so, it it really hurts relationships because then your relationship with them is based off of your actions and your ability to perform. And if you're not able to, then you can't be close, you can't be loved by that person because you're not meeting the expectations that they've set for you. Now, the third one, this is actually, I believe, the most insidious. This is these others-oriented perfectionists. This is where you're on the other side of the coin from the previous one, where you actually expect others to live up to your impossible standards. You're the one who's imposing these unreasonably high expectations on others in your life, and they can never reach them. And even maybe you yourself don't reach these expectations, but you're still communicating to others in what you do, and what you say, or maybe even just in your lack of approval that you expect more from them. It's really easy to see as a parent of three young kids when my three-year-old is screaming and throwing a tantrum on the floor because we put ketchup on top of his food and not next to it, (laughs) that I have an expectation that he would be far, far more reasonable. Come on, we could come to terms with this, Judas. Let's talk this out. Yet, He's acting like a three-year-old because he is a three-year-old. 
it's very simple, but it's been, very, it's been eye-opening for me as a parent to why would I place adult expectations on my children when they are, in fact, children? For others of us, it might be your significant other or your spouse. Actually, in many cases, it's, it is. You find out very, very quickly once you're married and living together that maybe there are expectations of how things are done, how laundry is folded, maybe how the dishwasher is loaded, right? Do the prongs go up on the fork or go down? I don't know, but we've been fighting for two hours and we have to figure this thing out. I know that driving is probably arguably one of the places that we're all most susceptible to this. Now see, if my lovely wife, Stephanie, she's driving the vehicle, like I will kindly and lovingly remind her, <laughs> honey, we need to merge in a little bit. Your, your exit's coming up. Oh, you look so great. And, you know, you just want to just pay attention to these couple of things. Uh, and then if we actually flip the script and she kindly reminds me, Ben, you know, there's traffic, there's cones, you might want to merge this lane's closed up ahead or something, then I will lovingly turn to her and say something like, I know how to drive. <laughs> My expectations of her and myself are totally different. I'm holding her to the standard that I myself am not living up to and that may or may not have happened this last week. So I'm here to <laughs> repent. Sorry, dear. But in doing so, in all of these things, we are actually looking to results more than we actually are looking to relationships. Relationships with others that are imposing expectations on us, relationships with others that we're imposing our expectations on, or our relationship even with ourself as we impose these unrealistically high standards upon ourselves. And we just focus on what is done rather than the relationship that is there. We, we focus on perfection rather than the relationship. We actually see this played out in Scripture. There's a few different folks in Scripture that you can see from what's shared in the text that they were likely struggling with some perfectionism. One of the most familiar stories of this actually comes out of the book of Luke. Jesus and his disciples are gathering in a home as they would often do as they're doing ministry and they gather in a home for a meal. If you're gathering for a meal, there are things that need to be done, and he's continuing to teach. And there's two sisters here. Luke chapter 10 and verse 40, it says this, But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him, she, that is, she came to Jesus, and he, she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Perfectionist, can you feel it? There's stuff that needs to be done. There's a whole bunch of people here. There's mouths that need to be fed. There's dishes that need to be prepared that we need to clean. There is uh, the rabbi, the Messiah. Actually, we don't realize it quite yet, but God in flesh is in our living room and she's not lifting a finger. Don't you care? She's being lazy. She's being so worthless, Jesus. Don't you care at all? Can you hear your own voice in that? If that someone, they're just not carrying the weight. Come on, I'm doing this all by myself, so I'm turning to you, one who's an authority. Will you tell her to help out? She's just sitting there not doing a thing, and I'm doing the right stuff, Jesus. You're here, and I'm here to help you. I'm here to serve you. There she's focused on her result, not on the relationship with Jesus. She's focused on what she can do for him instead of what she could receive from him. Jesus lovingly confronts her and reminds her that she's a little bit off base. 
But there's something inside of all of us that see this and we go, well, what was Martha doing that was so, so wrong? Well, what she was doing that was so, so wrong was that she had set her expectations unrealistically high for herself and then she started to impose those on her own sister. And in doing so, she's actually putting herself in a judge's seat over her sister saying, I know what's right and I'm doing better than her and she is less than. And so why don't you reconcile this, Jesus? Why don't you fix this situation here? And Jesus in the next verse says this, the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Jesus doesn't raise his voice to Mary, doesn't scold Mary, doesn't even kindly remind Mary that that she should be helping out if she's hosting. But he actually reorients the Martha, the perfectionist, to say, no, 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 don't impose your expectations on your sister, but actually see that your sister, she's doing the right thing. She's coming to receive from me, not to serve me. And you're anxious and troubled, you're wound up, you're stressed out because you're trying to meet expectations that nobody here has placed on you and now you're trying to impose on others. Because those of us that struggle with perfectionism in different areas of our life, when we are dealing with our perfectionism and we are trying to control things that are outside of our sphere of control, we become anxious, we become upset, we become troubled because we want control over the situation. And in doing so, not only are we tarnishing the relationships of those that are closest to us, but we're actually killing ourselves with our own stress. You see, it was over 40 years ago that they first did the personality test to try to find out what a type A person was and what a type B person was. And when they did so, they weren't doing so to find out who are the organized people and who are the unorganized people. They were actually finding the traits and the characteristics of those that have a type A personality because those people had a seven-fold chance of developing heart disease, according to that study. So they'll be very organized when they pass away early. <laughs> and their family won't have to clean up much. But it could kill you. And there's been other studies since that, th that don't have quite the same results, but I think there is something behind that. If you are really killing yourself with your stress and your anxiety of these unreasonable expectations you're placing on yourself, now, Martha is not the only perfectionist that we see in Scripture, that there is another one who wrote actually the majority of the New Testament, especially the epistles, and it comes from Paul. Paul was an outstanding person. Paul, who previously was Saul, was a persecutor of the church, and he had done some amazing things in his persecution. He was so young in his rise to becoming a Pharisee, and he knew it. And in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, he writes this, and he's talking about his laundry list of the things that he did, and he's telling the folks, hey, look at the stuff that I've done. He says, though I myself have a reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He's about to tell us. Here it is. I have more reasons to be confident. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. Can you just hear him like puffing his chest up? He's just flexing on these guys. Look at, it, look at this stuff. Look at all this stuff that I've done. Do you see who I am? Do you know? I'm Paul. 
I've done all these amazing things. This is who I am. And according to the law, I'm blameless. And the perfectionists, they would love this sort of list. Look at me. Look at the things I've done. Nobody's doing this sort of stuff. I'm, I'm getting up at this hour. I'm doing this thing. No one is carrying this much of a load at work. No one's carrying this type of load at home. I'm doing the most. Can you see all the things? I'll tell you all the things if you want to know. But Paul actually follows this up with the correct way that we should view even our best works. But whatever I gain, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as garbage, would be another translation, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that, com- or that comes from the law, but that which comes from faith in Christ. The righteousness from God depends on faith. All of his good works. I actually heard it recently this last week that Jesus died not only for all your sins, but he also died for all of your good works too. Because even in your good works, even in all the things that Paul did right, it could still be tainted with his desire to be prideful, with his desire to set himself apart above somebody else so that he could feel better than them. There is still the sinful flesh inside of Paul that was driven to show Paul's worth instead of showing Christ's surpassing worth. And that even all the good stuff that we do in comparison with the holiness, the perfectedness of Christ, it's rubbish. It's garbage. And to actually truly believe that in, in him that we are made whole, having faith in him is where we find our righteousness and not in all the stuff that we do. You see, he had the correct understanding of where his expectations were coming from. I'd love to ask you this morning, who has set the expectations that you're living under? Was it mom or dad when you were growing up? Did they say, it doesn't matter how well you do as long as you try your hardest? And we know you tried your hardest and you get all A's. Is it someone from work? Is it a spouse? Is there, is there someone or is it yourself that is placing these expectations on you? Because if you stop and think about how do you order your day, your week, your month, how, do you or, how are you ordering your life, What is it that you're trying to obtain? Whose expectations is it that you are trying to reach? Because there's someone, someone setting the standard for you. And until you think about it, then who is it? Who is the person that's setting the standard that I'm living by? It makes me think about a time that I knew that I couldn't reach the standard. You see, in high school, I was a thrower. I threw shot put and discus, and I remember going to one meet, and I was beat up. I think at this point I had just finished traveling, and I had gotten back to school this day to go to this meet. And I remember going to that meet, throwing shot put, coming over to the discus pit. And what they do there is they line everybody up in order of how long is your furthest throw that you've ever thrown. And so they do different flights according to, you know, what's your best distance. There's a little bit of miscommunication when they sent over my numbers from my high school to this high school. I had, at that time, doing okay, I had thrown 119 feet and 9 inches. According to the sheet, it said that I had thrown 199 feet. (laughs) 
and I won't forget it. I forgot a lot of other stuff, but I won't forget that the first flight went, yeah, I could throw further than those guys. The second flight, okay, I'm probably in the mix with them. The third flight, okay, those are the guys that are actually going to win. And it gets down to like me at the very end, and everyone had seen this list posted, 199 feet, Ben Mark, wow, he's going to be a state champion. I'm going to be here to watch it when he breaks 200 feet. And walking into that discus pit and for some reason believing that everybody there was placing these expectations on me. we got to watch this kid who's going to throw this. I think I fouled out all three throws because I was so nervous that I was trying to reach an unobtainable standard that I didn't set for myself but had been somehow set for me, that there was no way that I was going to reach that, and that I was so concerned about the opinions of others that I was just hoping and praying that God just give me the strength. Just let me, you know, throw one really good one today, maybe get a new best or something. It didn't happen. We're focused on getting the approval of others rather than God. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 10, it says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? For if I'm still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. We know this to be true. You can't serve two masters. And much in our lives, we actually are trying to seek the approval of other people, trying to seek the approval of all those that are gathered around to see us, you know, do this amazing job and this amazing feat of strength by throwing this this far, or this simple stuff in the day in the day out that we're trying to show our employer or our spouse or our kids or, 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 that I am good enough, can I just show you? And then I can get your approval. But really, there's only one place that you should be looking for approval, and there's really only one place that the standard has been set for all of us. And the standard is a high bar, and, and the, the common ground where we all start off is, is that Romans 3, verse 23, is that we recognize this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The playing field has been leveled. There are those that are more organized. There are those that are less organized. There are those that hang up shelves level and those that don't. But before an almighty God, all of us fall short. Before a holy and perfect God, we miss the mark. It's not just every thought. It's not every word. It's every deed. It's every desire of our heart. Because as we look at what Jesus is telling us, he kind of rewrites the script for us. It's not just the Ten Commandments. It's not just doing the right stuff, but it's thinking the right way. It's desiring the right thing. It's everything about us. And you know what? We fall short. Every single one of us, because we are simply human. We know that to be true, but we have to pause long enough to recognize that the expectations that we place on ourselves are not the expectations that God has placed on us. Because if God looks at the way that you order your days, your weeks, your months, your years, and he sees the way that you carry yourself, there are certainly things that as we sin and we fall short, it, it pains the heart of God, but is, is his expectation of you, as God looks upon each of us, is, is his expectation that you live a perfect life? According to scripture, no, it's not. God knows that you fall short. And for that very reason is why he had to send his son. The perfectionism, it places all of your worth on what you do or what others do or their approval and gets you all worked up and anxious and troubled. But God, he places your worth on what Jesus did. It is entirely and completely external. It's nothing about what you do, say, think, because all of that is tainted and evil and sinful in one regard or another. 
But God places his worth on Jesus because of his surpassing worth, because he was able to uphold the law that we weren't able to. One of my favorite verses of all time out of Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 8 and 9, it says this, For grace you have been saved through faith. Amen? Amen. It's an amazing verse. And here we focus on a little bit more of 9. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that, so that no one would boast. Here, Paul is telling us, hey, this is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. It's by faith. It's through grace. And he has to like, just repeat himself here. It's not your own doing. It's not a result of works so that you can't boast, so you can't puff your chest up and say, look at all the stuff I'm doing. Well, all the stuff you're doing has nothing to do with your right standing before God whatsoever. It has everything to do with the gift that you've received in faith by grace. By grace, God has given you that. It's nothing to do with your actions. So there should be a weight lifted off of our perfectionist shoulders going, you know what? I am weak. You know what? I do screw up. You know what? I haven't done everything just right. And it does in no way change your standing before a righteous and holy God. Because his standard that he's set for us is not the same standard that sometimes we try to live up to. I'd actually argue rather than lowering the bar, God has raised the bar. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, therefore be, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You have to know the context. You have to know what is actually happening around these verses. Who is he saying this to? What's going on here? Well, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And when you take the Sermon on the Mount and you compare it to the Ten Commandments, you see that the Sermon on the Mount sets a crazy, crazy high bar, even that which would surpass the Ten Commandments. It's not just about your actions, but it's about all this other stuff. You don't think that you committed adultery? Well, did you lust? You don't think you committed murder? Do you hold anger in your heart? Well, guess what? We've all sinned far, far more than we would care to admit. And here, in the middle of this Sermon on the Mount, where he's setting this ridiculously high standard, he's saying, you've got to be perfect, as God is perfect. And much, when we look back at the Sermon on the Mount, we go, How, who in the world, who in the world could live up to these unreasonably high expectations well, the one who, the person in the world is the one who came into the world to fulfill these expectations that we could be perfect. The other thing that can be helpful when you look at things in context is that you actually go back and you look at each and every one of these words. Because we have this English word, perfect. It's 100%. You did everything right. You checked all the boxes. When you go back into Greek and you see that it's the word telos, you realize that it doesn't mean exactly that English word. It actually means to be brought to its end, to be complete, to be made whole or perfect, that it has integrity, that God has integrity in self. God is whole in and of himself. There is nothing wrong with God because he is complete and that we are called to be complete just as he is complete. This is the standard God has set for us, to be complete. But the question isn't, how, the question is how we become complete because we know it can't be in and of ourselves. So it forces us to look outside of ourselves to the exterior to go, where is this completeness going to be coming from? Interestingly enough that this word telos is the same word that was said by our Savior hanging from a cross. A cross that he didn't deserve, that you and I deserved. As he stepped down from his throne in eternity to take on flesh, and enter into a sinful world to be persecuted, beaten and bruised, 
and had nails driven through his hands and feet, hanging from a cross, drinking sour wine, that he uttered the word to telestai. A variation of this same word, tele, to say it's complete, it's finished. The work that needed to be done, the unbelievably high standard that God has set, his perfect holy law, every single thing, every single I has been dotted, every single T has been crossed, I came and I fulfilled all of it because they couldn't do it themselves. I came here to do it for them. This is what they deserved, and I'm taking that punishment from them so that they can now be complete in you, God. I am completing the work that they could not complete themselves. So it is not a call here in Matthew chapter 5 to say, you need to go ahead and complete yourself. You got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You got to try a little bit harder to be a complete person. But rather, he's saying, I am going to make you complete. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work, well, your good work will carry it to completion or to perfection into telos, until the day of Christ Jesus. He is the one who began a good work with you. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He is the one that will bring it to completion. There is not one bit of work that needs to be done to have a right standing before God on our part. And so with that in mind, we have to ask ourselves this question. Now what? Now what then? Okay, I'm not perfect. What does that change for my day to day? Well, I'll tell you, I've served, as you saw, as I've served in the church, the capacity as a student director for 10 years. And it wasn't until a few years ago that I remember sitting down. Sitting down week in and week out with my supervising pastor who was checking in about ministry and checking in about life and never forget the day where he kind of changed his tone a little bit. He said, it's really interesting, Ben, to be able to stand up in front of all of our students. You're able to tell them about a God of love and mercy and grace. You're able to tell them about forgiveness, this gift of faith that they have. You're able to do that up in front of all of them. But could you tell me why you don't offer it for those that are closest to you in your life? And I remember how much it hurt, but how much it hurt in a really good way. Calling out in me that I'm able, you know, able to stand up and tell people, hey, you have a perfect God who loves you perfectly, but in my own life, holding others to a standard I myself don't reach, withholding approval of those that are closest to me and not realizing until someone loved me enough to call it out in me to say that there's hypocrisy in your life and that you're functioning as a prideful perfectionist even if your office is messy. And the same might be true for you this morning. Are, those th- are there those in your life that you've hurt and that you've hurt in a really deep way Because you come here or you watch online and you hear about a God of love and grace and mercy and you yourself then go and live out in your relationships day to day and act as if he doesn't exist or he hasn't done one thing for you and that others need to earn your approval. Or do you beat yourself up 
and you seek God's approval, forgetting what, is bl- what we've already covered, that Christ has already covered all that stuff, that you need not worry about it because he knows you're weak. So the now what is that we are called to go before God and we are to recognize this. This is what Paul finally says. He says, this is what he said to me. This is Jesus speaking to Paul as Paul has come before God and said, God, I'm weak. God, I have a pain in my life. God, I have a thorn in my side. And we don't know exactly what it was and I love that we don't know what it was because then all of us can come to this and we can relate going, okay, I don't know what Paul dealt with but I'm dealing with something too and it just doesn't line up. My life isn't just right. And Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Church, God has never called you to be perfect. He has perfected you through his Son. There is not another finger to be lifted. There's not another job to be done to be right before God. And now the work to be done on our part is to recognize just this. We are weak, and it's okay. Because in our weakness, that's where his power is found. On this side of eternity, while we're longing for perfected bodies and perfected relationships and to be in the presence of God, we long for that because that's what we were created for, but we recognize while we live in the tension of in-between and we're in the midst of all this pain and weakness in our lives that God is sufficient even in our weakness. We don't need to justify it. We don't need to become self-righteous. We don't need to sweep it under the rug. But we can come before him with open hands ready to receive the gift of faith, the gift of grace, with all of our weaknesses and with all of our good works, and he calls us his children. So this morning, we get to experience just that. In just a moment, we get to receive these good gifts from God in communion. If you're a guest here this morning, we have, communi- uh, we have our communion guidelines that'll be up here on the screen so you can see what it is that we believe about communion. And in the gift of communion, we recognize this, to come forward to the table and to receive the very true body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that you know this. You are coming forward to receive the body of the perfect one, the one who had to die for you and for me because we aren't perfect. It is coming forward in weakness saying, God, I need yet again your forgiveness, which he offers to each of us freely. And also the beautiful thing about this meal is that he strengthens our faith, which may be weak today, but that we know that we get to go from this place, having our sins forgiven and our faith strengthened so that we can go forward and love others not as perfectionists, but love others as broken children of God who want to point others to the real perfect one. Will you pray with me as we prepare our hearts and confess our sins before God? Heavenly Father, now we thank you for your word. We thank you for what might be uncomfortable for some of us to come to terms with. God, that we are sinful and that all of us here, we fall short of your perfect law. God, we pray that you would bring to mind for us those that we have may, may have hurt with our, with our expectations and our standards that are unreasonably high and the judgment that we place on others or the judgment that we place on ourselves, God. 
God, we pray that you would forgive us those sins and that you would call us to come forward in weakness and remind us of the righteousness that you freely give. God, in this moment of silence, we pray that you'd call to mind all those areas where we fall short and that you do forgive.